Good morning, church. It's always good to gather together, come under God's word, uh, just lift our voices to him. Thank you guys for, for being here this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to uh, Ephesians. I almost said Acts. It's not summertime anymore. I had to do way too much re- leaf raking yesterday for it to be summertime. Uh, Ephesians 2 um, is where we'll be today. We're continuing on in our study through the book of Ephesians. And as we're making our way through this book, um, one of the things that I just wanted to remind us this morning is, is, um, is why we're studying this book and, and, and why Paul wrote this letter to a group of believers in Ephesus. Um, and, and Paul wrote this letter to encourage the believers to have uh, a strengthened faith to encourage their faith, to bolster their faith. He wrote this letter to the believers in Ephesus to um, spur on unity because Ephesus is a bit of a, a melting pot. And so there's Jews and there's Gentiles. And then there's now this weird anomaly of Christians who are coming and they're proclaiming much uh, about Jesus and they're following him. And so there's some, some tense relationships going on in Ephesus. And then finally, he wants to strengthen or spur them on to pursue holiness, to fight sin and temptation. And as we, as we spend our time working through this letter to the group of believers, we see over and over how Paul is, is accomplishing this work, how he's, he's striving to make much of Jesus, to spur them on, to fight for unity, to live full of faith, um, and then also to, um, to, to really like overlook the things that divide each other and pursue the things that unite us. And, um, and since that's one of the reasons why he wrote the book, I just wanted to pause before we jump into Ephesians 2 this morning in light of what happened um, over the weekend in Pittsburgh at the synagogue where, um, you know, this morning there's 11 families who are dealing with loss and pain as, as our world is broken and our hope is not in this life, it's in the one to come. And, um, and this morning we want to make much of Christ, but we want to also acknowledge that there's, there's very real hardship and struggling and that Um, 11 people lost their lives because of the brokenness of this world and somebody who entered into a synagogue and and sought to do harm, sought to take life. And so um, if you would just join me, I just want to spend a few minutes before we dive into Ephesians 2, since, since Paul is writing to pursue unity and overcome racial tensions, I would say that it's appropriate for us this morning to just to just pray for unity, for the things that, that unite us, um, that first and foremost we would come under Christ, but then um, just seek to love. And, um, and so if you'll just join me, I just want to pray, um, and then we'll, we'll dive into our text. So, uh, Father, we just want to proclaim this morning that you are good. Even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of brokenness, even in the midst of things that are bigger than we can understand, um, God, you are good. Father, this morning, I just want to pray for um, the city of Pittsburgh, for the churches um, that are in Pittsburgh, Lord, for this this synagogue this morning, that um, the leaders of of the synagogue who are trying to care and love and um, really make sense of of a senseless act. God, of evidence that this world is messed up and broken. And more than ever, Jesus, we need you. We need your spirit. And so, um, Father, for this synagogue, Lord, I just pray that you would awaken their hearts and their eyes and their minds to the truth of your word, 
to the goodness of your grace, to the, to the truth of Jesus, who you are, that you are Lord of Lord and King of Kings, that you are the Messiah. Yes. Father, you promise in your word that you use all circumstances for good for those who are called according to your purpose. And so, Lord, I want to pray for the churches in this area. Lord, that they would shine brightly the love of your son to this synagogue, to these families who this morning wake up in despair. For these families this morning that wake up grieving and hurting. Father, I pray that your church would shine brightly. I pray that people would mourn with each other. I pray, um, Lord, that they would weep with one another. Father, this morning, I pray that we would seek to be a people that love well, serve well, enter into the hardship and pain. And Lord, just as your apostle Paul writes, that we would pursue unity to make much of Jesus. And so God, we just want to pray that you would be glorified, Lord, that you would work through even the pain and the hardship of loss and suffering. God, we acknowledge that this world is broken and our hope is not in this world. We love you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Um, as we dive in, um, if you were with us last week, uh, we tried something a little bit different. I hope it was encouraging. I hope you were blessed by, uh, you know, bringing a desk up here and having Matt just kind of open up his devotional life, his quiet time, his, his time with the Lord, and, and really kind of put himself on display um, and we walked through the end of Ephesians chapter 1. Um, and, and this morning as we dive into Ephesians chapter 2, I've been struck by, as we've walked through Ephesians so far, there's all of these really big words, all of these weighty concepts. We've, we've tackled words like blessed and adoption and forgiveness. And as you just read through it, we talk about inheritance and predestination and salvation and sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who's the guarantor of our inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Um, there's just all of these really big concepts that for a guy who went to public school makes me want to reach for a dictionary and go, what in the heck are we talking about here? I don't understand these words. And Matt's done such a good job leading us through the first part of chapter one or the first part of the book of Ephesians. And this morning, what the Lord has really impressed on my heart is as awesome as it is and as right as it is to study those really big words, we also need to not neglect the small words. And what the Lord has laid on my heart this week is that I want, to, I want to spend some time looking at the small words. Because as we come to Ephesians chapter 2, if you'll just look with me at verse 1, we pick up this morning and Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We start off with this word, and. And that's an interesting word because the word and links two things together to bring unity, to, to link them together in concept and in structure. And so he's starting, or we're starting our text this morning, having to look back at what Paul was talking about previously. And so if we just looked back very quickly at the end of chapter 1, we see that Paul spends a significant amount of time making much of Jesus in verses 15 on, 
He talks about how Jesus was raised and seated. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name. He's linking together all of these really beautiful, really hard, really big words to describe who Christ is. That he has been raised and seated. He's been given power and dominion. And and it's like Paul can't get the words out fast enough. As he's writing, as he's thinking about who Jesus is, just more images, more concepts, more words come to his mind to declare the glory of Christ. And as he's making much of Jesus, 16 times he's going to use the word and from verse 15 in chapter 1 to the end of our passage this morning in verse 10. As he's thinking about it, as he's talking and saying and rule and authority and power and dominion and, 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 We hit this really rough transition because he's just spent time making so much of Jesus. And then we get to verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin. He pivots away from looking at Christ and starts looking at humanity. And he says, man, Jesus has rule and power and authority and humanity. Y'all are dead in your sins, in your trespasses, in your shortcomings, in your failures, your faults, your flaws, you're dead. One of the other places we see um, this language, this and you were dead, is, is, is in Luke 15, where Jesus is telling the story of the prodigal son. And if you're familiar with the story, it's about this young guy who has a very wealthy dad and decides he doesn't want to wait for his inheritance. And so he goes to his dad and he says, give me my money now. I want to go party. And the father says, fine, go and lets the son go. And the son lives like a rock star for a season. But as on all things on earth do, the money fades away, the party stop and the friends abandon him. And he quite literally finds himself laying face down in a gutter, hopeless pondering his life decisions, and he reflects and he goes, man, even my dad's servants, my dad's slaves lived better than this. And so I'm going to return home, and I know I'm not worthy to be counted a son anymore, but maybe, just maybe, my dad will let me live as a servant. Kids like what I'm saying. Um, And so he returns home. He's starting to make his journey home. And Jesus says that while he was still far off, the father, he paints this picture of like a dad sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair, just watching down the road, longing to see his son again. And while the son was still far off, the dad gets up, sprints down the road, road, wraps his son in his arms, puts a robe around him, puts a ring on his finger and, and starts to party. And he says this, for this, my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. He says they began to celebrate. Jesus is telling this story to demonstrate or illustrate a spiritual truth that Paul then comes behind after Jesus has conquered sin and death and says, yep, Jesus talked about how you were dead in a parable. You know what? That's a real condition of our hearts. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And this morning, as we look at our small words that make all the difference, the first word I want us to look at is this word and, and how the and in Ephesians 2 revealed our path. That on our own, Paul is saying, and you were dead in your 
trespasses, in your shortcomings, in your faults, and in your failures. And and then he's going to extrapolate, he's going to expound on that and talk a little bit more about what it means to be dead in your sins and in your trespasses in verses 2 and 3. He said, "In in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. None of us are left out in this, in this first In this first small word, this and, we were all dead in our trespasses. And he he kind of starts to paint this picture of three ways that we are left dead in our sins and in our trespasses. The first we see is the world. We once walked following the world. I like that he uses once walked. That kind of took my mind back to Psalm 1. Where David, in a, in a prayer and in this just encouragement, um, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. David and Paul have this understanding that when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to our response to God, there is no neutral. That we either walked or walk in the world, the power of the prince of the air or the flesh, or we'll get to that. So what we see here is we once walked in the world. I think that kind of looks like maybe seeking culture's approval over Christ's. Looking to affirmation, looking to acknowledgement from your peers, your family, your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors. You want people to give you validation. You want to find your identity in the world. You want to find your self-worth in the world and what the world thinks about you or the world says you should be over what Christ says you are. And that leaves us in need of help. If we walk in the world, we're dead in our trespasses. Secondly, he says, you walk following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is terminology that he's using to speak about Satan, which is a theme throughout the book of of Ephesians, that he's trying to relate to Ephesus and the believers there, that there is a very real spiritual battle going on. In Ephesians 6, speaking of this spiritual battle, he says, again, trying to promote unity within the body of Christ, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is an enemy. And when we are stuck in the and, we are dead in our trespasses. In this first part, when we're in the and, we are the sons of disobedience. We are the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's where we all start. We're all left here in this spot where we followed 
the enemy. We were on the wrong side of the ball. We were enemies of God. There is a real spiritual battle going on, taking place, and we need to be aware of it. So we can, we can follow our own path, which is the world, which is the prince of the power of the air, Satan, or finally, he says, the passions of our flesh. You just seek to, to do whatever makes you feel good. It's all about you. And he says it's the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath. This and that revealed our path is one that leads to destruction. And what really struck me this week as I was thinking about this, as I read that phrase, children of wrath, a question in my mind is, well, okay, who's, whose wrath is it? And what blew me away was just thinking about God and how Jesus looked down as he sits outside of time and he says, I know what the end is going to look like when I come back to judge all of the sins because he just spent, Paul just spent the end of Ephesians 1 making so much about how good and right and powerful and holy and just and righteous Jesus is. And then he compares our state on our own. And he knows we are destined for wrath. We are destined for punishment for the things that we have done. And Jesus looks at our condition and he knows his own wrath. And he knows we need help. He knows we can't do it on our own. And we're like the rest of mankind. And so Jesus says, I've got to do something about this. And he has a plan. But the and reveals our path that we're stuck, we're trapped, we're dead. If you're dead, there's not much you can do anymore. There's no life, there's no energy, there's no effort, there's, there's nothing there. And that was our condition. We were children of wrath, and Jesus looked down and said, they're in trouble. And this would be a horrible spot to say, let's take communion, pray, and go home. Paul points, paints, a bleak picture. After painting a beautiful picture of who Jesus is, he paints a very dark reality of the and of our circumstances. And we were dead. But then we come to verse 4. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him. Now we get some and with hope. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The second small word that we come to that makes all the difference in this, in this transition now from, uh, from our bleak picture is this word, but. But God reveals his plan. The and reveals our path. The but reveals God's plan, God's path. That we are not left on our own. And the word but is interesting because it basically serves in our conversation. If you think about when you use this word, it's like, man, I was headed to the store, but 
I forgot my keys and I had to go back home. Or I forgot my wallet. It changes the direction the conversation is heading. And we were headed down a path that we were in trouble. We were stuck. But God. Notice it doesn't say, but Nate. But the pastors at Redemption. But fill in your name. It's but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. The truth of the gospel is it's not about us. It's about him. He didn't save you. He didn't rescue you to use the the language Paul uses here. He didn't make you alive in Christ because he owed anything to you, because he needed you in any way, because he needed me or owed me anything. We are made alive in Christ because it's, he's rich in mercy. Because he's full of great love. And it's just his character. As we've been going through Ephesians, we've been talking a lot about identity. God's identity, God's character is one of love and mercy. And he looked at our situation and saw, these are children of wrath. My wrath is coming and I am going to pour it out on them. And I can't have that. He would have been totally, totally justified in doing that. His character, his holiness, his standard is so far above what we measured up to that if he wiped us all out, he was just in doing so. But he's full of love. And he looked into our situation and he knew his own wrath and he said, I'm going to get in the way of my own wrath. I'm going to take that on myself. I'm going to allow my son to suffer and die so they don't experience my wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us. He says that it's by grace you've been saved. It's not because of anything we did. Titus 3, in another letter to a young pastor, Paul writes, as just an encouragement And just this helpful reminder that it's not about us. It's about who God is. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he said to us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And I'd encourage you to go home and finish how that sentence ends because it's really good. But it's not about us. Not by works done in our righteousness, but according to his mercy, to who God is. When God saves you, it's just God doing what God does. Saving people, rescuing people. It's his plan, not ours. And then we come to verse 5. It says, we were dead in our trespasses and God made us alive together with Christ. You were dead But God's plan was to resurrect you, just like he did Jesus. To overcome the sin and death in your life and in your heart, just like he did on the cross. Praise God for verse 4. That that small word, but, changes our entire hope, our entire direction. Everything pivots. And then verse 6 is interesting. Because Paul says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. If we go back to verse 
20 in chapter 1, kind of a, a, a cool picture of the Godhead at work, speaking of the Father on behalf of the Son, Paul says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's what God did in Christ after Christ died and rose again. He was raised and seated. What did Paul just say about us in light of verse 4? In, in light of being made alive in Christ, he says, and he raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. The same honor, privileges that were made alive in Christ, that were given to Christ, are made available to us as followers of Jesus. When you embrace your identity as that of in Christ and the truth of the gospel that you were stuck in your sin, you were dead in your trespasses, but God made you alive. You now have hope and abilities and power and things made available to you that were not when you were stuck in the end. We were made alive in Christ. So now you can go into your home and be more selfless. You've been made alive in Christ. You can love your neighbor. You've been made alive in Christ. You can go into your workplace and shine the light of Christ because you've been made alive. Before you were dead, you could do nothing. Now you've been made alive. Verse 4 changes everything. But God changes everything. And then he says that in verse 7, So, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. That for the rest of all eternity, God is just going to show off for us how good, how rich in mercy, how big he is in grace and kindness, that eternity will spend just going, there's more of God forever and ever and ever. The but revealed God's plan. It changed everything. As I was thinking about that this week, an analogy kind of came to my mind to maybe hopefully help illustrate this. Um, I was raised in a home where my parents taught me the purpose of dating was to find a wife. That was why you dated somebody. That was why um, that, that was the purpose. And so this like, oh, I just have a girlfriend to just have a girlfriend to have a girlfriend never really like resonated with me. And then I'm socially awkward and a little shy. And so like I didn't have a ton of game anyway. But I would have like every conversation before I was married, not every, but probably pretty close. Um, in the back of my mind, when I would meet a girl at my high school, I would just have this curiosity. Could this be the one? Is there something? And then if there was an affinity, if there was an attraction, if there was anything there, like, oh, maybe this could be the one. Like my parents taught me, you, you're, you're looking for a wife. That's what you're doing. And I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm saying this is me. This is me in my brokenness and in my just messed upness. Um, this is how I was raised. And so I would enter into a relationship, a friendship or whatever with a girl. And in the back of my mind was this question, could this be my wife? And when there would be an affinity or an attraction, like we'd have another conversation, we'd, we'd maybe like never really date, like I just didn't do that. Um, and then 
what would happen is as I'd get to know them a little bit more, they'd let their crazy flag fly. And I would sprint. I'd be like, I couldn't spend the rest of my years with this person. They're, they're nuts. I'm gone. I'm out. And then, I'm, and then the Lord opened my eyes to my wife. Because we knew each other before we started dating, before, you know, that ha- Like, we knew each other, but I really feel like the Lord just kind of kept us from ourselves, or we'd have been married at like 13 years old. Um, and so, when God opened my eyes to this is the one that I have for you, and I'm pretty sure her crazy flag flew, it just was my kind of crazy, and it's just been awesome. Um, but now, everything is different. Before Katie, my wife, it was a bleak, hopeless, miserable existence where I was searching and looking and always evaluating and, and trying to find the one that God would have for me. And truthfully, it was just not working. But then God opened my eyes to my wife. And you know what happens now? Like, I don't enter into a conversation with a woman going, could this be my wife? Like, that'd be super creepy and weird. Like, that's not how my, I found my wife. I'm, I'm done. That's, I, I found what I was looking for. And now my job is to steward that relationship, love her, cherish her, honor her, die for her, do whatever I can to serve her and love her and protect our marriage. But I'm not looking for that anymore. I found it. And everything changed when I found her. It changed my perspective of how I approach relationships. Finding and having your heart and your, your eyes illuminated to the truth of the gospel should change everything. All analogies break down. Like, please don't, like, dig too deep into that story, like, and dissect it and email me. Like, it, it just, it serves its purpose. Um, but everything changed. There should be a difference if you've been made alive in Christ, in your life, in your heart. You once walked in the world, power of the prince of the air and the flesh, but you've been made alive in Christ. It changes things. So we see that the and reveals our path. The but revealed God's plan. And finally, verses 8 through 10, the four revealed his purpose. Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in them. You were stuck. You were dead. But God made you alive. For what? One, first and foremost, Paul hits it again. It's grace. It's not you. It's grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. I read a commentary this week that gave me an illustration that that grace is the medicine that our souls needed And faith is the syringe through which the medicine gets where it needs to go. It's all God's grace that saves us. It's faith that helps it get there. But he doesn't stop there. He uses for a couple more times. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ 
for good works. We are God's creation for, saved for good works. I've been really um, encouraged and just spent a lot of time this week uh, dwelling on a verse in 2 Corinthians, another letter by Paul uh, to a super messed up church. Um, but in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5, Paul says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. It's not about us. It's about God. Our sufficiency comes from Him. I can't get up here and preach on my own merits and my own ability. My sufficiency comes from God. You can't enter into your workplace, your home, your family life, your, your homeschooling life, your tea, whatever it is that God, wherever God has you, your sufficiency comes from God. It's not of your own works. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God so that the only thing we can brag about is Jesus. And I love how he kind of wraps this part up. He says, we were created, we are his workmanship for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you guys to do something with me. I want you guys to just close your eyes. And I want you to think about before Genesis 1, before the sun the moon, the stars, the trees, the animals, people. There's nothing. The Bible says that the Spirit of God just kind of hovered above the waters of the earth. Before any of that had taken place, God is sitting there on his throne and he's daydreaming about you. And the works that he has for you to do when you've been made alive in Christ. Not a word of creation has been spoken yet. And God is thinking, Nate, I have this role for you to play. And I'm going to breathe new life into you. And I'm going to save you for those good works. Because I'm rich in mercy and love. You can open your eyes. You once walked in the world, in the power of the prince of the air. You, we all are guilty of giving our lives to things that don't matter. But God in eternity past sat around thinking about the part that you would play in his story. That's why he made you alive. Because of his love, because of his mercy. And then now he's going to take that love and that mercy and that new creation and he's going to give you purpose. He's got good works for you to do. I think in our culture today, like I think the temptation is to look at ourselves or, or look at maybe people we podcast or we watch on TV or, or maybe even people who get up on this stage and say, man, I can't really do anything until I become more like them or I fix what's broken inside of me. And in a very real way, that's taking power away from Christ and saying, I need to be my own savior. 
But it's also neglecting the fact that God made you who you are on purpose, for purpose. This church does not need more Nates. It needs us to be the body of Christ with many members coming together to put the glory of God and the goodness of His grace on display. He has you where He has you on purpose, for purpose. He made you alive in Christ for good works. I want to kind of wrap up with just a verse from Psalm 100. Psalmist says, Know that the Lord is good. That, that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. Church, that that would become our identity. That we would recognize that we were a people stuck in the end of our own path. But God made us alive for good works. It struck me this morning that, you know, these, we, we're talking a lot about small words that make a big difference. I don't think there's any small roles in the kingdom of God. You have a role. You are his creation. He is is your creator. You are his. And when you embrace that, you get to walk now in eternal purpose, not temporal. You get to make much of what Christ did in your life that could echo into eternity.